I struggled on for another two or three months and I just had just a, a horrendous breakdown at, at work. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm very excited today. On the line we have Matthew Williams. Matthew is an author. He's a public speaker, and he's a project worker for the Middlesbrough and Stockton branch of the Mind Charity. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Al. So, Matthew, I got to say, uh, ahead of the show, you know, I do a little research. I ask for some info. One thing that really struck me was 11 years you worked for England Boxing. And now, before we get into this, I do have to say... I've seen you on a video or two. I've seen some photos. You look like your nose is very straight. You're a decent-looking guy. And uh, w what kind of work were you doing for 11 years for England Boxing? Well, I didn't have any punches being thrown at me. I, well, I was guessing I, not. I, I say that. It was uh, it was close on a few occasions, man. <laughs> okay. um, it was funny enough you say that. You know, one of the, one of the things about boxing, there's a real... Um, thing where you have to be seen seem to belong to fit in be a boxing person and when i first started working for them we did a, a event where we were speaking with a number of clubs and coaches and that was the first question first thing that got mentioned to me your nose looks very straight there so what's your background in boxing <laughs> <laughs> i said i'm just very good defensively um, but no my, my work so um i led the club and coach development program so I did a lot of stuff around coach education um you know so training coaches in the uh, how to communicate plan uh, risk assess techniques of boxing all of that kind of stuff and I then uh, did a lot of work around safeguarding children um so keeping children safe in sport uh, in, in in boxing and then in, in the last couple of years there, I developed a, a workshop along in partnership with uh, Mind on mental health within within boxing. So, yeah, a range of things I did there that, you know, I really enjoyed and took a lot from. 
That is really cool. Did you have any kind of particular training in your background that allowed you to get into like coach development and things? I mean, that sounds like some pretty high level work. Yeah, well, I'd, um, I, I used to be a, a runner when I was a when I was a kid, a, an athlete, a, like middle distance cross country. And so I'd been coached myself and, you know, being a, a, an athlete for a number of years. And then I, I did a sports science degree and I got into sports development work, which was very much around. And I'm very interested in people, what makes people tick, developing people, helping people to reach their potential. And so I was always drawn to the coach development side of things. And I've, I've been passionate about boxing since I was like, I saw Rocky two when I was about 10 year old and, you know, I've watched, you know, however many thousands of fights and read a lot about the sport. And so, yeah, it was just a, a lot of my passions coming together, I guess. That is really, really cool. And it's interesting to me that you mentioned the combination of mental health around the sport of boxing. The first thing that comes to my mind, and maybe many of the listeners too, is just CTE, which we hear yes. a lot in the U.S., yeah. prob probably in the boxing field as well, but a lot in like the NFL and yeah. all of the yeah. pounding and banging on the head. And, you know, you can even point to some, unfortunately, some professional boxers who seem to almost struggle to get words out. And you wonder about oh, yeah. just the pounding on the head and CTE. And I'm wondering if you can talk about just a bit of the, the mental health and maybe depression versus CTE yeah. or if it's one in the same. Yeah, well, so it's um, well, first of all, I worked in, in amateur boxing. So like, you know, the Olympic three round boxing. So right. the, the incidence of injury so it might be surprisingly is very low. It's a very safe spot compared to others. But obviously a lot of amateur boxers go into professional boxing which is, you know, much longer duration, um, you know, often those, those kind of, when people do get badly injured, it's um, often in the later rounds of a fight, but then obviously there's the things like CTE, an accumulation of blows over a, you know, long period of time. And funny enough, I was um, speaking to uh, one of the podcasts I followed, guy who used to be the editor of, the trade boxing paper over here which is boxing news and he's actually just written a book on cte in boxing that's going to be published in about september in the uk i think and i've spoken to him a little bit about it from through when i was doing the work for england boxing around mental health in the sport and it was something i was very conscious of of needing to address that fact within the workshop because on the one hand we're talking about how boxing can benefit mental health through you know it's very intense physical activity that releases endorphins you know there's big people gain a lot of confidence it's often people that are from difficult social backgrounds and it gives them a sense of belonging so there's all these advantages and benefits to the sport but by its nature it involves head trauma so I did. I did put that in the workshop because we do need to be conscious of it, and we actually cite the example of the NFL as you mentioned. We know there's been a number of lawsuits, and you know a lot of cases of people suffering in later life with dementia and things like this. So it's something that does need more research, I think. And I'm really keen to read this book that's going to be coming out on the subject. But uh, there's a 
I think a general consensus that a lot of the damage is done in sparring, in, in training, which obviously isn't regulated. Right. And, you know, certainly within in amateur boxing, there's often a, more of a view that sparring should be about learning and development rather than trying to take each other's head off. Right. So, but yeah, it's a, you know, the, anything around boxing, there's a, you know, there's, there's always that ethical question you have to ask yourself. But through my experience in boxing, I know just how many, how much good it does and how many lives, it's a cliche, but how many lives it saves. Um, but yeah, we've obviously got to be mindful of the, of the risks of it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned all of the positive pieces of the mental health as far as boxing goes. And I have to be honest, I, I mean, just like I've watched matches on cable and stuff. I'm not a huge fan of the sport, so it's not like I've watched a ton of it. But yeah. I do only think of the negative piece of all the pounding on the head. And you're right. There are so many benefits that you talked about, like the, you know, having a purpose, the exercise, obviously, the training, yeah. the discipline, even just an avenue to get your anger and frustration yeah. out. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things about boxing as well that that uh, I think people don't realise or understand, and obviously I can only speak for the UK in terms of my experience, but boxing gyms are real communities. There's a real sense of community and a real sense of belonging. And you know, I've heard coaches say stuff like, you know, some of the kids in this gym, you know, I, I'm the first person that's ever believed in them and told them they can be something, and. It, it is it's life-changing and and that you know that people think of it as violent and tough and you know it is tough but you know some of the most sensitive people i've met are boxers and there's this idea that you know a lot of them do kind of you know lack confidence believe it or not that they, they often feel confident in the ring but might really lack confidence in other areas of their life it's I've always been fascinated in the psychology of boxing long before I'd had my own issues around mental health and stuff. It's it's always fascinated me. Um, it's obviously such an extreme pursuit. And, yeah, it's, uh, it still does. It'll fascinate me for the rest of my life, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, and I, I, you know, violence turns my stomach. You know, if I saw a fist fight on the street, it, it would turn my stomach. But to me, boxing's an intense form of competition. And... It's very much, you know, trying to outmaneuver and outwit, and you know, it's yeah. I see it. I, I just see it as an intense form of physical competition. Right. So, eleven years in the the field of boxing. I'm curious what it was that ended uh, your eleven years. Did you just get kind of tired of it, burnt out, or why did you end up leaving the field of boxing? I did. I mean, it's it was very. It was very strange, really. It was um, I had I've had three major severe depressions in my life, and the third um, was it was a year ago, exactly a year ago, and I just I just felt I needed to. I just felt I couldn't. Uh, it's a strange feeling. I just felt I I couldn't. I had to move on. I and. I, I can't necessarily articulate what, because it wasn't like I'd been thinking before that, oh, you know, I want to leave. Da, da, da. You know, I was really enjoying the work I was doing on the mental health. and I, But then as, you know, the illness kind of took over me, I just thought I need, 
I need to change something. I need to do something different. And I think, I mean, looking back, I had stagnated, really. I'd been there 11 years, and one <laughs> there can be quite a – you meet some of the best people and have some of the best experiences, but there's also a negative side to it. And I mean, I mentioned the point about you, whether you're seen as a boxing person. You know, the, there's a lot – it can be – yeah. It can be a negative, you know, working for a governing body that always brings with it, it's, you know, can bring it an us versus them tension. So there were certain parts of the job that were were, were, were difficult. And I just got to a point, I think, where I, I kind of couldn't be doing with that. You know, I, I loved the sport, I was passionate about it, I wanted to do what I could to help it. And, you know, to some of the battles you have to face just to do your job. Right. It, it, I, I, yeah, I just didn't. And to be honest, I mean, you said burnt out, and I think that I think that was a part of it in hindsight. And it's interesting with the the podcasts I mentioned on boxing uh, that I listen to. It's called Boxing Life Stories, and a lot of the people in that that you do go through that stage, um, whatever their involvement in the sport, it, you know. It, I always say there's you see the best and worst in life within boxing. Right. Um, but since I left, I've I've regained my love for the sport. I just you know the actual just the sport of it, the competition of it, and I've started. I'm now a director with a local boxing club where I'm helping voluntarily with. Uh, you know, with funding, governance, all of this kind of stuff, the stuff that most people don't want to do because they right. want to get on with the fun parts of it. Right. Uh, but I enjoy doing that and I've got my love back for it. And, awesome. You know, fortunately, I I was able to, to get a job in, in within mental health, which was yeah. it's obviously a, a great passion of mine. And it's, um, yeah, I needed that change. And as soon, I just feel at home doing what I'm doing now. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, you made it sound like it was during a third bout of major depression that you left. Were you in the midst of the yeah. depression when you did leave? Yeah. And do you ever look back and regret it? Cause one thing I hear and, and I think I do try to uh, live by or did try to live by was trying not to make any yeah. big life decision when in the midst yeah. of a depression, right? Cause it's easy yeah. to be like, I mean, everything sucks, right? And life is yeah. a nightmare or a disaster feeling. And you left a career you had for 11 years. And it seems now yeah. when you talk about it, like you have plenty of reasons that you needed to be out. But I'm curious if you look back and think maybe it would have been different if you didn't have the depression or maybe life would be different if you stayed in it and if you have any regrets. Um, I don't have any regrets. I I try and consciously live my life in a way that I do the best I can with what I've got at that time. And then whatever happens, I can't look back and I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done the other. Or, and, but you're right. When you're in the midst of that, it, it's not the time to make a major decision because you're not thinking, you know, but I mean, yeah, I was just not in a good place, but I, and, and funny, so my, with my two previous episodes of depression, it did kind of manifest itself in my work and not believing I, I just couldn't do my job anymore. And and, and that was in uh, two different organisations. Of course, once I was got better, I was like, well, 
yeah, yes, no problem. Right. So right. it was a it was a strange thing, but I I got the sense that I just I don't know. I just felt I had to. I just felt I had to. And in my life, there's and one of the things I speak about that I've written about is this idea that everything it's trying to tell you something. It's trying to teach you something. It's trying to say that you need to make some changes somewhere in your life. And that was, it just felt like that was it for me. And, and that's the touch wood, fortunately, how it has proved to be. And I have no regrets, absolutely no regrets at all. I've got my love back for boxing. I'm working in mental health, which I love. And, um, but yeah, I certainly wouldn't say recommend making a major life change during that because it was, you know, it brought with it its difficulties. But right, right. I, I, and when I started the new job, I was still, I was still in a bad place. But it was about two weeks into it, it just lifted. I just, I remember I was in the office, and obviously I had my new colleagues, and I was very conscious I wasn't myself. You know, I'm, as you probably guessed, I can chat on a bit <laughs> and you know my colleagues were talking I just kind of joined in the conversation and and I remember just catching myself thinking I'm me again nice. and yeah and it just and it's strange how you, you you can be in the lowest place possible for months and months and months and with me I describe it's like I must have to switch in my head because almost overnight just something happens it lifts and I'm a different person again, but the good, <laughs> you know, the positive, the confident me, it's a strange, strange thing. But yeah, it was definitely the right decision. It really strikes me that you said there was a point where you thought to yourself, I'm me again. And yeah. it makes me think, and a lot of the listeners may have heard this already, but man, for a long part of my major depression, I was like crying to my therapist yeah. saying, I just want to feel like myself again. Yeah. And I said it to my yeah. wife and my sister, my brother, like I did not yeah. feel like me at all. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. so hard to explain, but, yeah. um, but clearly you had a similar experience because oh, of what absolutely. you said. Like, um, I remember there's a couple of things that really stand out for me on that. I remember a uh, crisis team visiting me in my home and they, and th this was my, during my first episode. So that was back in 2006. Uh, so I say I was well into my thirties, I think when I had my first episode, never experienced anything like that before. And the crisis team came to my house and said, right, tell me about, tell me about you. Who's Matthew? And I was where I was sat. I was next to a photo of me with my, um, uh, holding my son just after he'd been born. And I said, that's him. Because I wasn't that person anymore. Right. And and I think through, and I think it's one of the, the cruel things, a, a horrible thing, the, the nature of a mental health problem that I think people don't understand, or maybe, you know, you can't understand unless you've been there, is that, you know, that it does it, that whole thing about not being you anymore, you know, it's your identity, it's who you are, it's who you thought you were for years, and suddenly that's gone. And that's such a difficult thing to do with on top of all of the, you know, just how dreadful you feel anyway. But, and, and, and it's why I personally, I think it changes you forever when you go through something like that, because it forces, or it did me to question that, 
well, who am I? And, and why did that happen? And what, you know, which elements are me and which is the depression? And, but, but the flip side of it, and one thing that came up that was really good, I remember I had a realization. I thought, well, if my mind can do that and my brain chemistry, whatever you want to call it, turned me into something, someone that I couldn't even recognize, that couldn't speak, then there's a flip side to that. And actually, there must be a, an opposite to that where I'll be capable of more than I ever thought I was. And through recovering, that's my attitude that I don't put limits on myself. Um, pretty awesome. strange. Like, it's like night and day, you know, how it is just two different people. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, in my mind, when you said that, I was thinking like the opposite of how I felt through my major depression. And if that that negativity could be turned around into as much positivity, yeah, I absolutely. would be like Superman. Yeah. <laughs> I would be like, yeah, I would be flying and climbing buildings and like, because yeah. I was so down, but I do appreciate that perspective and the idea that, I mean, really you're saying like our brain is so powerful yeah. and imagine if yeah. we can utilize yeah. it for good and in positive ways as much as, as low we got. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's really cool. So tell us more about, it sounds like you didn't have any kind of depression did you grow up with any kind of anxiety at all or was your no. first depression like that was the first like that was it yeah I mean I'd had I used to be a warrior as a kid um and yeah I used to worry about whenever someone got an illness I'd worry that I was gonna get it but it wasn't debilitating it was right. more my it, just in my head things I'd think and there's certain things happened in my life that I'd kind of ruminate on for a long time when I was younger. My head would just go round and round and round. Like real serious things or, um, or kind of insignificant? Um, serious to me, I mean, but not... Can you give an example? Well, so I could be my own worst critic. And I mean, one of... The, I suppose a strange one that leaps to mind. I mean, see, I could be overly critical about things that I'd done or hadn't done, or but on a it's slightly different. The one that stands out was when I was very. I must have been, I don't know, about ten, eleven, or something. I was at a beach, um, right on 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 holiday. I was at this beach, and on the way in, there was this um, a, a, a toy shop, and. So as we were driving into the thing, we saw this toy shop. And so me and my brother decided we were going to walk up to it from 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 the beach. And we hadn't realised just how far it was. It was miles away. So we, we got however far along the way and we started, here, shall we turn back? And, and we did and we went back to the beach. And for some reason, it just lodged in my head that I could have been abducted. That if we didn't turn round and we kept walking, you know, we were still a long way from the shop and we could have been abducted on the way. And I just find myself thinking about it. It's such a weird thing because it, yeah, it's just strange. So well, I well after, kind of well after the event, oh, yeah. were you yeah, continuing to think about yeah. it? Really? Yeah, but the funny thing is, I mean, the funny thing is when I was, when I was about seven or eight, Someone did try to abduct me. I was asked to get into a car with somebody, and and I didn't. And and 
But that never played on my mind because, you know, I said no and I walked off. So, it, and I suppose there is those two bits of me, the way I can be kind of very confident and assertive, but that knowing thing in my head and where things are, you know, talk about the rumination and thoughts cycling around your head. I, so I always had that. Well, and I wonder, just like you mentioned the the feasibility of you being abducted had you not say no to some stranger in a car and just like subconsciously if that weighed on you somehow you know because then to ruminate over the fact that you could have been gone i I don't know it's interesting and and because i mean i remember after it happened um and i was it was just outside my house actually and i went in and i remember telling my brother so someone's just asked me to get in it and it's right it's, it's almost like a real cliche so in i don't know what's like in america but in the uh, in the uk around the time when i was growing up there's a lot of campaigns around stranger danger and there was this stereotype of uh kind of an old man with like black thick rim spectacles glasses on in a white van and and that's what it was that's who kind of asked. i was in my new football kit with a football and he asked he want he wanted to take me to a field he said and it was just this stereotype. But I remember I went in, I told my brother, and um, I remember saying, don't tell mum and dad, because I thought they'd be angry that it was my fault. And I had no reason to think that. My parents were great. You know, they weren't, you know, there was no reason for me to think that. But, yeah, so who knows what. But, no, I wouldn't say. I. I so, so although there was that kind of worrying element, I wasn't, um I, d- I didn't struggle with any sort of mental health problems. I um, I could be moody, but I, I and I suppose as I've got older I've, and after I've experienced my problems, I wonder. You know, you wonder how much is your personality, how much is it an illness? I mean, it can still be quite difficult to reconcile the two because I do have a kind of quite introverted side, which you know I read a lot, I write a lot. But then I do have a side that is very confident and, you know, is happy to stand up in front of however many hundred people talking. It's Right, right. You know, I can be, yeah, strange, really. So it sounds like you were in your 30s for this first episode. Yeah. Was, was there kind of a lead up to it? There was. There was. It was, um, again, I think you see a lot of these things in hindsight. So it was 2005 in de- December. I got married. And I'd been with my partner for 10 years. And within the space of a month, um, so the beginning of December, we got married. We went uh, to Las Vegas, spent a week in, Las, week in Las Vegas on honeymoon. We came back, then it was Christmas. And then on Boxing Day, my, uh, my then wife uh, found out she was pregnant. And then on New Year's Day, she miscarried. And... I'd always wanted to be a dad and, and it, I was just numb really. I didn't more, I was just numb. It was a, but I never felt right. I never felt quite right after that. And then it's about four months later, I realized there's something wrong here. I just can't feel happy anymore. And I just, I, I felt like a, and the image I used to always have in my head, I felt like a boulder rolling down a cliff that couldn't stop. And I knew I was going down and down and down and down. And it's, um, yeah, and 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 it just 
totally it totally consumed me. I had no idea what was happening and I were just there, couldn't get out of it. Were there other symptoms? I know you said you didn't feel like yourself and you knew you were kind of going downhill. Were there other symptoms that were indicating you were going downhill? Yeah, the the, the big one. I I, I just had to say I couldn't have no pleasure in anything. I um I just was constantly worrying about my job. I didn't feel I could do it anymore. My head was just con. I felt like my head was in a vice. It was just just beating all the time and and I just um I just felt like I was carrying this really heavy weight that was just dragging me down and down and down and and it got to the point where terror is the word I yeah I used to describe it like just going to a meeting would fill me with terror yeah. it, it's so strange I mean you know, it's stuff you do every day and, right. you know, that I enjoy doing, never mind. You know, I love doing stuff like that. And I just couldn't face things. Um, one, of the, actually, uh, one of the cognitive distortions they talk about is called catastrophizing. And it sounds yeah. like oh, yeah. that's what you were experiencing, right? Like yeah, a meeting, what? Like, and, and letting yeah. it overwhelm you. But it's weird because it's funny because saying like I have – you know, I've always had this thing about my, my thoughts, how I can ruminate on things. But it when depression took over, it's more the the feeling, the mood, the emotion. And then, so it wasn't like, I mean, in each of the instances, it wasn't like I had very negative thoughts about myself that led me into it. There's obviously stuff deeper there. But it was just this feeling took over me that I couldn't shake. And then your thoughts start, well, then I can't do this. I can't. And then that kind of went. But it's like the thoughts followed that feeling, really. Right. How was your uh, then wife doing at the time? And did she know what you were going through? And did you share it with anybody? And also just the personal news of a miscarriage. Did you share that with people or were you holding that all in? Yeah, I mean, I've always been someone that I can talk, you know, talk to people and, and, and confide. And, I, and I'm someone that people tend to confide in. So, yeah. And, and, and plus, it, it, it's obvious. I mean, I'm, you know, some people are very good at hiding depression and uh, your know, mental health struggles. I'm not. I, I, it was obvious that I wasn't myself and everyone could see it. And so I'd. Yeah, I had sport. You know, my brother, my uh, my mum, obviously my wife at the time. People in the office at work noticed, and but yeah, just nothing seemed to nothing seemed to help. And it was you know, I was very conscious. It was obviously very very difficult on my wife because she was obviously going through you know dealing with the miscarriage and then having to you know we we were newlyweds and. You know, I should have been happy, and I was just <laughs> in the the pit of uh, despair. It uh, it was awful, <laughs> right? And her mental health was she doing okay? Do you think throughout her um, the miscarriage? It was very difficult for her. She she it took a toll on her. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. no doubt about that. But she's a very she is a very strong strong person and you know she was there for me and and right but, but yeah it was very very diff it was very tough on her yeah, yeah definitely very tough 
And and then probably dealing with you, a, a spouse who was going through depression, must have just added to her plate too. I know yeah. that was challenging for my wife. I'm curious. You know, you mentioned the crisis team coming out. How did this culminate into the crisis team eventually showing up at your place? Well, that was I. Um, I went to the doctors, and. It wasn't that the first time I'd went to the doctor, my mum, I broke down in front of my mum and she said, look, you need to see a doctor. Yeah. She said, you're clinically depressed. You need to go to a doctor. And so I went. Did that to the surprise doc- you when she said that? Or were you like, yeah, mom, it, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I knew she was right. I knew she was right. I, I It was the first time anyone said it to me. Um, yeah, it's cool that it's, she did because it sounds like it was kind of the kick in the pants that you needed. Yeah. Well, I went to the doctor and I walked in in England, or certainly in the northeast where I'm from. All right's a form of greeting. You just say, you know, rather than saying hello, or hi, you say all right, and the person says all right back. You, you know, it's not. Oh yes, I am all right. You, you know, it's all right, all right. So when I went to the doctors and I knocked on the door and she said, "Come in," and she walks in. I said, "Oh, you're all right." She says, "How are you?" I said. Uh, yeah, all right. How are you? And and then I said, No, I'm not. I'm not all right. And yeah, Hannah. And she prescribed me antidepressants, and I just didn't want to take them. I, I I just and so then it was like, right, I've got to beat this on my own, and and I didn't, and I kept falling, so, falling, falling. So did she give you a prescription, and you literally yeah. did not fill it? Yeah, okay. yeah, um, and maybe. And I, you know, I was scared to take them. And this is one thing that I speak about now. And you know, I have people that you know ask me questions about it, and I've struggled. You know, there's the stigma, there's fear around around medication as well. And yeah, I, I just and and I think it's a male thing as well. You, you almost see it as a sign of, of of failure, of weakness that you know I have to beat this on my own. And anyway, I um. I, I struggled on for another two or three months and I just had just a, a horrendous breakdown at, at work. It was a, a, a big work function with like over a hundred colleagues and I just went to pieces. It was horrific. What do you mean um, you went to pieces? Can you tell us any of the I just, details so, of that day? Yeah. So it was, I'd been off, I'd just got off six. So I'd been off for two weeks. I'd, I'd, I'd just finally taken the, the, you know, the, the plunge, if you like, of, of accepted I needed to take time off. So I had a two-week sick note. And what did you and do during those two weeks? Funny enough, I actually, the first couple of days, it was, you know, just dragging myself around, just feeling dreadful. And then I, um, I went, I just took myself on a few days. There's some beautiful places where near where I'm from, a place called Whitby, uh, which is like a seaside place, uh, York, which is a historic city. And they're my kind of go-to places, really, to, you know, get away and feel better about things. And So you were and able I, to get out and about, which is yeah, very helpful. Yeah, I did helpful. start to feel better. And, and, you know, I'm a big reader. I started reading up on it. And I did start to, I did start to feel better. And, and, and then... The day I was due to go back, I remember I was getting a shower, uh, and I just the whole it's like I came out in goosebumps. I, I was in a hot shower, but 
I just felt goosebumps all over me that that just terror. I didn't just thought I can't do this. I can't do it. And I was at um Did your colleagues know why you took two weeks off? I don't know actually. I think my my, my close colleagues in my regional team did because they'd seen over a, a, a period of months me going downhill. The at this work conference, you know, the, the people I hadn't seen for a while because we were a national organisation, we'd all get together. And, you know, I, I, I found right afterwards a few were, people were really worried about me and asked my boss to pass on their thoughts because I went to this. I'd had the two weeks off. I'd started feeling better. Then I felt dreadful and said to my boss, look, I can't, I can't come back. I'm, 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 I'm really not good. And we we had this, say, this, this event on the Monday and it was in a really nice Play. It was like it's a theme park over here called Alton Towers. It's about a three-hour drive from where I live. And he said, "Look, we'll just come to this." It's. Um, he said, "No pressure. You don't have to." And my boss was brilliant. Was really smart. He said, "You don't have to." He said, "But you know, there's no expectation on you. There's no pressure. You know, you might enjoy it. It'd be with your colleagues, and you know, you know." And I generally love my job. I love my colleagues. And as soon as, as soon as I got in the car, I was with three colleagues sorry two colleagues as soon as I got in the car I thought I shouldn't be going here and it was a long drive and, and I, God, I remember I was in the back of the car and I was I don't know if you have to wait it was almost like I was shrinking myself against the door and like I was hiding and in the back and I just kept looking out of the window down at the road thinking I could open this door here Wow. I could just open this door and um and we got there and I just and I sat through the morning sessions and I just had to escape. As soon as it was lunchtime, I went to the toilet and I was just in absolute bits. And then I just went out into the grounds and I was just wandering, just wandering, and my boss came out. And he said, I'm going to take you home. And he drove me back three hours and then drove three hours back to get back there himself, which, you know, as I look back and, you know, that was an amazing thing for him to do. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. And then, so I was off then for, so that night, I just funny found out that a friend of mine had, had just gone through the same thing. And so I contacted him and he came over to see me that night and he said, take your tablets, take your tablets. And so I started taking the tablets then, but I was off. So that was August, end of August. Now I was eventually able to go back to work in the following January. So I was off four or five months in, no, five months in total. And were you doing anything for that four or five months? Were you getting counseling, therapy? What were you doing those Yeah, months? it was very... It, because I mean, it's you know, it's like when you, so when you got to bread, you've got no pleasure in 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 doing anything, and it's funny because we're in this lockdown at the moment with the obviously the coronavirus, and one of the things that I, lockdown isn't a bad thing for me because I've been isolated and on my own, and but I can still in this position, I can do things, I can enjoy things, I can read, I can do my job, I can do my writing then I couldn't you know there's no enjoyment in anything so it's just dragging through the days any way I could really and I did very little I'd, I'd, I'd go for walks I'd I'd read so I'd but 
That sounds Nothing. really, really challenging to me only because I took 10 days off of work before I took an additional three weeks and checked myself into a partial hospitalization program. But in hindsight, those first two weeks, those 10 days of work that I took off were horrendous. Yeah. I mean, I was on the couch and I tried to make lists like I'm going to clean the bath, yes. one bathroom yeah. Yeah. or I'll do one load of laundry and I couldn't do anything. Yeah. And I think like if I had done that for four or five months, that, that would have done me in. Yeah. Well, well, it nearly did. I did a lot of, you know, trying to figure things out, trying to work things out, read and write in. And, and you were on very, your meds. Yeah. And I, and I knew, I knew I'd need counseling. I knew the, I, I just, I knew there was stuff I needed. I knew, I knew it wasn't just a case of take tablets. I'll get better. Right. And, but I was very resistant to, to actually getting counseling because back then I, I, I looked into getting CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the only therapist I could find charged like ninety pounds an hour, which is a you know a lot of a lot of money, and and so the, you said about catastrophizing. So the thoughts in my head were that that was the last chance that if I saw him and didn't get better, my life was over. And so it's like I put it off and I put it off because I suppose as long as that was there, there was, I don't know, it's a weird thing looking back, but I put it off and put it off. And, and also the money wise, now I was fortunate my employer at the time, I, could, I they, they continued to pay my full salary for all that time I was off. Oh, right. And after six months, they had a really good insurance policy. After six months, I would have gone down to half pay, which I still could have survived on. Right. So there wasn't a financial pressure in that regard, but in my head, I was never going to be able to go back to work. I was, my wife was going to leave me. I'd lose my house. I'd be homeless. So I needed every bit of money to hold that off for as long as possible. So I was very reluctant to see the counselor at 90 pounds an hour. Right. Because I thought I'll need that. That money is the only thing between me and being homeless was what I thought. And when I did eventually see the council and I told him that, and he, he said exactly what he said about the catastrophizing that he said, well, you've gone from, you know, where you are now here today, sat with me to being homeless in, you know, in, in, in that click of her fingers right. where there's all these things that <clears throat> time between the things that would need to happen these points at which you can you know, you know get out of this and um and what turned the corner for me so there was seeing him and it's it was coming up for our our first anniversary and we'd decided to go i've got family in this in in the US in uh, in Texas and we decided that we were going to go there for our anniversary. We had such a obviously terrible year that we were going to going to go there for a couple of weeks. And I just had this determination. It's funny. So when I remember going to the airport and the, the physical symptoms I had, it's like my head and my, my temples were tingling all the time. It's like almost disembodied in a way. It's a strange, strange feeling. And 
and it was still there. But I remember I was determined to act as though I was okay for my wife. I just thought, I want her to be able to enjoy this. Then at the end of it, you know, I, I have no idea what's happened. My life could be over. But for these two weeks, I'm just going to pretend as well as I can. Put the mask on and fake That I'm all right. Yeah. And I did. I was able to do it. And I loved being over there. So staying, we stayed with my auntie in, in, in Katy in Texas, just outside of Houston. And it was a lovely place and doing a lot of reading. We were visiting places. And we booked a, a weekend in New York, which it's just an amazing place. I, I, I loved it. And it, it when I said about that thing in my new job and the last episode where it lifted, there was a time, <laughs> I went to Times Square and I went into a bookshop, which is, you know, I always love spending time in bookshops and I enjoyed it. And I thought I could get, I might actually get better. Gave you a sense of hope. And it, Yeah, it was the first time I thought that. And I remember, and I was able to enjoy the holiday. I really enjoyed it. And it was like I could forget I was ill. And then on the plane back, I remember thinking, I, I want to do that again. I want to fly places. I want to have holidays again. And I had a sense of optimism. And then I remember getting back and having a moment where I thought, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? You just... You were just, it's a fantasy. You were just escaping. Now it's back to reality. You're still ill. I remember but a voice inside said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You, that was real. You felt well. You can do this. And that was middle of December. And then I met with my boss and then we agreed I'd go back at the 2nd, 3rd of January. And my, obviously my wife was worried about it, but I knew I was all right. I just knew. I knew I'd be all right. And we agreed a phased return, but I was I was fine. And I actually, and my colleagues were great. I, you know, I went and sh- did some work with my colleagues and I loved it. I loved it. I felt reborn. I, I felt, bo- I, I did, I felt reborn. Life was just, everything felt amazing. And uh, so strange that like for so long, I felt so bad. And then once I turned that corner, it was like, I can do anything. And yeah, I, I really did believe I could do anything. And I had a fantastic year afterwards where, you know, yeah, I, I did. I, I, I got I got the job in boxing, which was a, a dream for me. I we we had our first child. Yeah. And it was like life was amazing. So I don't I don't think that you answered the original question. <laughs> which I, which I'm gonna come back which to. Which is like which is like me. I go off on one. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. That was awesome and, and super informative, and I love it. Uh, but the original question was, what eventually brought the crisis team to your place? That was the question. So I went to the and doctor. I might have missed it actually, but it I don't was, think I right. did. <laughs> no. So what happened? So I'd said I went to the doctor the first time, and I hadn't taken my tablet. Right. I went. I went. So the prescription was expired. And I went back when you to decided the to actually take it because your buddy said you got to yes. take them. Got so it. I went back to the doctor and I broke down in tears. I was just a mess. And and she was lovely, the doctor. She was really nice. And she said, 
you know, do you think of harming yourself? I said, yeah, all the time. And she said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to arrange for someone to come and see you. And I'd never heard of a crisis team. I didn't know what it was, but so yeah, they, they came, they came to see me that, that later that day. And what was that experience like for you? Um, was it one person who I, showed I, up more than one? No, there was there was two. Uh huh. They probably always go out in a was team. Was it two or was it three? Because I, I had a few visits, and there's always more than one. But there might have even been three at the first one. I think there was a trainee as well. Um, but to be honest, I felt I felt pretty ashamed, really, that that I was in that I'd got into such a bad state that that they had to come round to see me. And, I, yeah, I felt ashamed. And they, they uh, just knock on the door and say, hey, we're here because we, we yeah. heard that you're thinking of harming yourself and we need to talk to you? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, um, and I didn't believe that – I didn't believe anyone could help me at that point. And they prescribed me with – was it Valium, I think? that, And I think – because I, I was having, you know, real anxiety at that time as well. I mean, depression's my – kind of diagnosis but when i was you know there was moments of real anxiety that i had during that oh yeah they go um, hand in hand depression yeah anxiety. and so yeah I, and i only took i think one or two of them because again i was worried about getting addicted or whatever yeah um was it a good experience to have them show up or or were you trying to kind of blow them off and appease them yeah i'd say i was yeah Okay. I just didn't believe they could help me. I didn't believe anyone could. Right, right. And so I just felt, and what I felt was that it's lovely because everyone's really sympathetic at first and they want to help you. And I remember just thinking, I thought, I'm not going to get, the doctor's going to get sick of seeing me. They're going to get sick of seeing me. I'm going to stay like this and everyone's going to blame me and think, well, we're trying to help you, you know. And so... I just wanted to hide away from everyone, I think, really. And I suppose part of you is going through the motions because at least then my family, my wife could see that I was trying something. Right. right. But yes, but I, I, I didn't believe it could help me. Right. Really. And and then as far as this first depression goes, it seems like it was really the, the trip to Texas that really kind of made you see the light and, and yeah. take a turn. Yeah, it's really, I don't know that, I, I heard something recently about this. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, a very successful author over here. She, a woman called Marion Keys, and I read something by her recently where she said she was interviewed and she did uh, baking. She suffered a bad period of depression and she, she started baking uh, you know, cakes and, and stuff. And and so there was kind of stuff made about it that baking was what got her better. And I remember this from from a number of years ago, but then I read just a few weeks ago that she said, she said, you know, it's been said that this baking cured me, said, but I sometimes think it was just something, she said, I'm not sure that any one thing does like that, that cure you said it. For me, it was more like, it was something that I found I was able to do that made it a, a bit more bearable until it 
it lifted and it passed like a black cloud would. She said, I'm not sure I did anything to make it lift. And I, I can relate to that. I think, you know, I did, you know, I got, I got counselling. There was a trip to America that I think they contributed. And that's, I think it's an accumulation of a number of things and, and that help you to keep going on, and it eventually passed. I, I, I don't know that there's any one thing that that was it. Right. But I think for whatever reason, the holiday enabled me to act that I was okay. And I hadn't been able to do that before. So it was definitely a cat, the catalyst, but I can't say exactly why, to be honest, because it, because some people then think, oh, well, if you'd have gone on the holiday earlier, that would have, well, no, it wouldn't, you know, I know that, you know, when I've had experiences since, it wouldn't, oh, well, if I just go back there, I'll be all right again. It, you know, it, it doesn't work like that. Right, right. Like when you get the, the, somebody trying to help you that really does not help you when they're like, just go watch a funny movie. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I hear you are... saying it's, it's more like, I mean, I talk often about like this tool belt and, and many things, yeah. right? You yeah, had the yeah, medication. Yeah. Maybe that was starting yeah. to help. You got away from yeah. the country. Maybe that helped you. Yeah. You were with friends and relatives. Maybe that was a piece of it, the connections you were yeah. able to make. I yeah. mean, it, there is a lot going on, right? And I think yes. that's part of the reason that depression is so so complicated and complex. Yeah, definitely. There are so many factors. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's one of the things that makes it when I said about how it transforms you and I think when I look to say I've had three episodes now. So you're talking over a period from what, 2006, the second one was 2013. And then the third one was last year, uh, 2019. And I think you want, you want there to, I remember after the first one, I, I guess I got complacent because I thought well, I've got through that. I've and, and and in my own head, I thought, well, you know, there was a medication. I had the counselling. I learned a lot about depression, and I thought I could never go back there again. And and especially because I, I had children after that, and I, so I thought that that no matter what happened in my life, I'd always have my kids. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks the second time because I think you you know you. You do, you want to think that there's a certainty, right, I've solved it and it can't come back. But like you say, it is, it's very complex. And I think it is a combination of factors. And each time I've had it, it's been a different thing that's got me through it. I've done the same things, but I've, I've never, each time I felt just as dreadful. It wasn't like, yeah, you've been there before, you've got through it, you do this and you'll be all right. Never felt like that. It always felt, in some ways it felt worse because it's like the second time it was well I've been through all of that and 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 I'm still back here then the third time between the second and third time I'd um I'd I'd got divorced and ended up writing a book and doing the speaking and all the things I do now and spoke about my journey and how all the positives that had come out my health, mental health and then to go back again was again it was like how how on earth have I ended up have I ended up back here? And it's uh, yeah, there isn't just one answer 
each time has been there's been something else I've had to work out, sort out. There's been the same kinds of things that have been involved in that. You know, I've used the same things, but ultimately there's been a different turning point. And obviously the last one, like I said, was getting the, the you know, I realized I had to change my career. Has there always been a pretty clear trigger for what set you into a depression? No. I mean, the first one, it's easy to put a finger on, even though yeah. it was several months ahead of time, the miscarriage, right? And Yeah. And incredible sadness and, you know, and it threw you into clearly a clinical depression. How about the yeah. second and third ones? Were there reasons? Was I know you ended up uh, in a divorce. Was the divorce in, a trigger at one of them? No. It's funny because, so the second one was I'd been having, I'd been under some stress at work. I took on some responsibilities that I really wasn't cut out for and was just left to get on with it, really. And it was very stressful and it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. And then the work I do, and I've always worked in jobs where you have funding for a certain period of time, so in that job it was four years of funding so you've got a job for four years then after that four years you don't know what funding you'll get generally there's a restructure and some jobs are lost and some and then I my job was put at risk and well so my, my job was deleted essentially and so I had you know there was that uncertainty and I did eventually you know, I got I secured a job within a different job within the organization. So that was in boxing, the, the the boxing job I had. And but it was funny, I got through all of all of that. And it was actually when I secured the job, I um I started it. And I just thought I can't do this. I just it, it's that thing that comes over you and drags you into the floor. It's like a again, like a weight had come over me or it I it's like a demon gets its talons into me and just drags me down and I couldn't do the job. I couldn't do it. And so, but the, the so the struggles at work felt like the catalyst for that one. Okay. And then the, the say the third one, I think what happened with, with the third one. So I'd after the second depression. So after the first one, I continued taking the tablets until I'd been well for a year and then I gradually reduced them and I came off them. When I was ill the second time in 2013, I I, I got better and again intended to do the same thing, come off them after a year. A year after I recovered was when my marriage ended. So it didn't seem, and I felt okay. I mean, obviously it was a horrible time, but I didn't feel I was going to be ill. And I, I spoke with the doctor. I said, look, it just doesn't, I feel, you know, all right, but it doesn't feel a good time to be coming off tablets. And she agreed. So I kept taking them. And I got, and it's funny that, you know, I wasn't, I mean, the divorce, it was horrible and I had, you know, low moments, but I was never ill. I was never close to being depressed again. And that was something I was quite, it, that for me was quite, it, it, it was almost like a proof to people, look, you know, just because I've been depressed doesn't mean I can't handle things. You know, these are some of the most stressful things you can ever go through. Uh, yeah. um, I found I, it. I found I it almost. 
almost comforting in an odd way yes. when I've gone through something like my dad recently passed away in the beginning of December. I'm sorry, and I, and I, well, thank you. And I, I was super sad, right? But yeah. but I certainly was nowhere near clinical yeah. depression, nowhere yeah. where I had been. And it's normal to get sad, yes. right? And yeah. I'm happy to say, like, I'm still on medication. I've been on it for a long time. And I'm yeah. still able to be sad and shed tears and cry. Yes, and, yeah. And so for me, it was almost, like, comforting. Like, some people yeah. say you become numb of feelings on meds, and maybe they need to look at a different med. And maybe I'm yeah. sure that does happen to some people on some meds. But for me, it was kind of comforting. Like, I can feel this deep yeah. sadness without going, uh, you know, yeah, down yeah, so well. I yeah, I totally get that. And, and I, I felt, so after I'd come out of the, you know, the, the divorce and all that settled down and I was still taking my tablets and it was, and then in last year, no, uh, yeah, last, last year, 2000, no, sorry, 2018, summer of 2018, I decided I wanted to come off my tablets. I'd been taking them for five years and I decided, so I got into this thing where, I was like, in terms of who I am, how much of it is me and my personality? How much of that is is depression? Is that in me? Is that just something that occasionally comes to me? And how much of who I am is down to my tablets? And I knew I'd changed a lot through because of the way I'd handled different situations since I knew I'd changed a lot and and because of my illnesses. And so I wanted to come off the tablets and people warned me against it. And it, my emotions were all over the place, all over the place. Did you wean and were you under the directive yeah, of I, a doctor? Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, I did. But, um, and, and the doctor gave me a sick note while I was adjusting to, to, to it. Again, my work were very supportive. And and I said, look, and when I took time, I said, look, I'm just adjusting. I'm not going to be ill. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm all right. I just, I, you know, I know I'm not, I know I'm kind of all over the place at the moment. And I just need, the, the doctor said, you just need some time. And and I wasn't depressed at the time, you know, and I made good use of that time. I, but then, my emotions didn't settle down and then I, um, yeah. And then I just, it came over me again and it didn't feel like there was a trigger in terms of what that I could, the only thing I can put it down to was coming off my tablets. And it, it was probably about six months after that, that it hit me. But then say, I, I just, it, I just got it in me that I had to move on. I had to, I had to leave my job. I had to do something different. And yeah, it was, were there similar symptoms to your first two depressions or was it completely different? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely the same. So all three were pretty similar it sounds like. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, identical, I'd say. And then much, yeah. so this last one I think you said was 2018. 2019 I came off the okay. tablets in 2018 and I was ill at the beginning of 2019. Right. So I'm curious now, do you live day to day worried about, okay, I've had three depressions. When's the next one yeah. coming yeah. or, and how do you handle that kind of anxiety? Quite a lot of people have asked me that. And are you trying to say I'm not very yeah. original with my questions? 
I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But but people, when you speak about it, I mean, absolutely. You know, people are interested, and it. You know, obviously, I like to talk about because I like, I, I like to help people that haven't been there to give them a bit of understanding of what it's like. Yeah. And for people that are there to see that it can get better. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I, I actually enjoy, you know, answering questions about it and what have you. I don't worry about it. No, I, I, I'm, but I don't want everyone, I don't want to get complacent about it because right. I've done that before. Uh, one of the things that I, I have an attitude now that nothing can be worse. Nothing can be worse than what I've been through. Nothing. Because, you know, not wanting to be alive anymore, you know, it doesn't get any worse than that. Right. You know, whatever the external circumstances that lead to it, you cannot feel worse than that. You can't. Uh, I hope you can't. <laughs> but, um, so I have that attitude in me. So when I'm dealing with difficulties, I generally think whatever it is, I've been through worse. But also, I said about my, how I used to ruminate and stuff. It's like... And like you with the tabs, I with the tab, I feel like me. I don't feel like a zombie. I don't. I feel like me. And I, but it's like my mind is very much in the now these days. I don't look back and regret things and mull over things. I don't, and I don't look ahead and worry about things. I, in some ways, I feel, I'm not feeling capable of it, but. I very, very much live in the day. And so no, I don't worry about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, but I but I am aware that you know that Well you mentioned not the being likelihood complacent. of you haven't Yeah, because you know, I know statistically, you know, if you've had one, you're more likely to have a second episode if you you, you, you know, it's like you the up chance of relapsing exponentially grows, I think. Right. I just don't, you know, it doesn't get me anywhere to think that. So I, 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 I focus on doing my best I can to make the most of, you know, just yeah. here and now. Right. That's awesome. So when you say here and now, I mean, the word that comes to my mind and maybe many is just living mindfully and is mindfulness yes. something that you literally practice or just that's how you try yes. to lead your life yeah 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 i try to lead my life that way i mean meditation was something that i found very helpful it, after my first depression i got quite heavily into meditation that helped me a lot i found it helped i said it, it put a bit of space between something happening and my reaction to it it's like it gave me a bit of mental space i felt but then when the kids came along, I, I, it, it became harder to, I, I just kind of let it go a bit, really. And it, it's something I was saying, I must get, start doing that again, because I know it's good for me. But I, um, I, but mindfully, yeah, definitely, I live, I live much, yeah, I do, I live very mindfully. And, but also um, writing, I started writing, and that's been a brilliant thing for me. Uh, I think that's a big part of why my head doesn't, things don't bounce around my head anymore. Right. Um, and also, um, it's an opportunity, I don't know, it, 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 
I'm very much in the moment and I feel, I guess, at home when I'm doing that. Um, what about yeah. now that you've experienced three bouts of major depression, do you happen to have telltale signs that you're able to reflect on and be like, ooh, I feel this coming? You know, I one of the things you mentioned, I think, was like tingling in your temples. Yeah. And I think... I wonder if you have any kind of telltales where you're like, holy crap, I'm not going to let this happen again. I feel something different, so I'm going to journal and write a lot more. I'm going to make sure I'm you know, exercising or doing whatever, dipping into my tool belt more because I, I see this telltale sign. Yeah. I, I mean, I write a lot. That's just something I'll always do. I, It's a weird one, because I think one of the things I've is if if a few different people start asking me if I'm all right, I think sometimes other people notice before I do. Right. So when that happens, that makes me think, am I? Because usually I'm like, well, yeah. So there's that, but one of the, <laughs> the two things that I love, I love reading and I love music. I love listening to music. And if I don't fancy reading anything or I just don't want to listen to something, if that happens for a few days, that that's a, a warning sign for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I mean, you're cognizant of those things. I also really appreciate the fact that you said if a couple of people ask you how you're doing because they really they're expressing some kind of concern rather than blowing it off like oh, what do they know or or whatever you really think like okay there that's two people who have now asked yeah. me maybe I ought to reflect on this yeah i mean and don't get me wrong there, there is a there is an element of that well, yeah of course yeah, i'm watching <laughs> you know we're on about but there is that thing that logs it and in my mind to think you know make sure you are right um yeah so i want to take a little bit of a pivot here and uh, and talk about your new gig so you left uh, <laughs> the world of england boxing and you're actually working for i believe it's the largest charity in england for mind one of the uh, branches of mind that's right yeah so mind's the uh, national my, the national charity is the the largest mental health charity in the uk and then there's um, local branches uh, of, of mind that are independent charities, but under the, the overall umbrella of, of the national mind. And it's called the Mind Network. And we, um, so the branch I'm in is the biggest mental health charity in, in, in the locale that, that I'm in. And what, what specifically is your role? And is it a paid position? It is. It is. Yeah. And, and awesome. I, I love it. it. It's quite a, an innovative project, really. It's, it, it, it's a project called community minded and it's, it's supporting people, people with mental health problems into volunteering into volunteering within their communities. And the, the premise behind it is that, often senses of isolation of loneliness of 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 not um 
lacking connection. Uh, uh, you know what a number of people struggle with when 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 they're experiencing mental health problems, and you know there's there's research that volunteering can really help address that because it gets you out and about, you meet new people, you learn new skills, and but also the sense that you're giving back and gives them a know, purpose. Yeah, exactly, and that uh, uh, and this is one of the things just out of all my experience you know finding a, a purpose i think is so important and Absolutely. feeling you have one and 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 yeah and it gives them that it can help and and and, and the people that come onto the project i the vast majority of them they're the two things i say i want to i want to get in about out and about and be around people and um I want to feel I have a purpose, and so on my project, on on our, the, myself, my colleague, a colleague, deliver it, and we, they're not in the acute stages of a of a mental health problem. They're ready to, you know, they're at a stage where they're ready to look at, obviously, be in a position to 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 start, you know, building again and getting back to normal. So, you know, if they're not we could work with people a while to sort of work on issues that might be barriers. So some of them have a social anxiety, lack some confidence and we could work with them on that. If there's still where, you know, they're really struggling with the mental health, you know, we can refer them to counseling and then say, you look, you know, come back to this project after you had some counseling or, um, but yeah, the bulk of them, they are the, the looking to then to re-engage. A lot of them have, have, have been isolated, felt lonely, and they feel ready to take the next, take a step away from that really. And it's uh, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing project. And, you know, we partner with a lot of local organizations and charities that provide volunteering placements. And just the, the scope and the extent of what volunteers give and how much how much people give to their communities to help needy people in their communities, you know, for nothing. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Your job must be so rewarding for you. Yeah, it is. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I meet some, I've met several men who are going through depression and are without a job. Now it's a whole different picture with COVID, but even before COVID, and I would try to convince them to get, you know, at least a part time job of something, maybe something yeah. they enjoy or they have a passion in. You yeah. know, if you're handy with your hands, look at a big uh, store like Home Depot or something or even a coffee shop, because yeah. just having a schedule going yes, yeah. out and communicating with people like that's a huge first step for oh, a absolutely. lot of people who are depressed. So those yeah. volunteer opportunities that you're helping create for them and connect them with is fantastic. How long have yeah. you been with mine now? Um, so it'll be a year in June. So what's that? 10 months. Awesome. Um, but one of the things that, that, and you know what you, what you said there, I think it is, it's so important. And, with the people that come to 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 our project, the, the approach I take is, I, I find out about. Um, I said there's two things: is either the the type of thing you want to do, the type of role you want to do, the type of thing you think you might enjoy or be good at. And sometimes we need to work. Well, we do. We need to generally work with people sometimes to identify that. Some blind people find it hard to 
to identify what they're good at or they take for granted what they're good at and just don't see them as particular qualities. So we have to, you know, we say, well, look, you know, these are real skills that you've got and these are the type of roles where that might be beneficial. So there's that, the role element of it, but there's also the, like you said, what are you passionate about? What are you interested in? Is there a cause that you're passionate about? Is there something that you would like to contribute to? Is there a type of organisation you want to be a part of and so I look at it from those two different and it can be hard I've been lucky in my career to 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 work in things that I am passionate about my work has never felt well there's been moments but generally it you know it's it's that it's a vocation it doesn't feel like a job I love it and and you know I feel very fortunate for that and so and not everyone's that lucky to be able to have a job like that but I think volunteering you it does it's easier to get into that door to doing something that you're passionate about because you know a lot of organizations a lot of voluntary organizations i mean yes there's certain you know you need to have skills to fit the role but often the will you know if someone's got a, a, a passion for a particular cause that they will try and find a way to include them and involve them so it can help people that contribute in some way to something that means something to them. And that can make a a, a huge difference to people. Absolutely. That's awesome. So I also, I want to ask you, in addition to a blog, I know that you've written a couple of books and both have connections to depression. And I'm curious uh, if you could tell us a bit about your books and your blog as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, a life changer for me and um it was so strange so i said i i dealt with the divorce thing all right and and it was a, a year and maybe a year and a half after my marriage ended that i think i'd been kind of getting by on adrenaline for a long period i got into a new relationship i um you know, you're kind of rediscovering yourself. I mean, we'd, I'd been with my ex-wife for 19 years. So, you know, it was, um, you know, I got a new house. It, it was only like running on adrenaline. And then a year and a bit later, a number of things happened. And it just kind of all hit me at once. And I just felt dreadful. I just felt like but awful. And I wasn't ill, but I knew I, knew I wasn't in a good place. And I'd never written anything. I was good at English at school and I was able to write, but I'd never written expressively. I'd never done it as a hobby. I'd never uh, pursued it in any way whatsoever. And there was this, I was, I was away with work and it was in a hotel, a, a hotel in, a, in, in, in the Midlands. And I just felt a compulsion to to write about how I felt. I, and, and that, the only way I can describe it was like a compulsion. I didn't know what had come out. I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. I I wrote it. So in my, the hotel room, I wrote this first piece about, I don't know, 600, 800 words on where I was and how I was feeling. I looked, I, on my tablet, I found a, 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 an app, a blogging app, I thought, how do I set a blog up? And I just did it there and then. And and it's like once I started writing, 
I didn't stop it. Stuff just poured out of me. That's and I'm awesome. saying my first book, it wrote itself. I mean, it really did. And it was, and the funny thing is, I felt this compulsion. I'd never done anything like that before, but I knew, I knew it was significant. I knew it was, I didn't know how, I didn't know. I just knew it was a significant moment in my life and that it was, my life was going to be different because of it. And very quickly, so after a week, I discovered that you can look find statistics for how many people have viewed it. It was like a thousand and odd. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and then I had people contacting me and off awesome. asking if I'd write them for this and that. But I never intended to write about my mental health. I, it was to do with it was more to do with the divorce and the changes in my life following that. But very, very quickly I realized that in the background of what I was going through was ultimately a fear that I, it would tip me over. It, it would tip over into depression because I was feeling pretty lousy. And so there was that fear there at that point. And I very quickly realized that if I was going to write openly and honestly, I had to write about my mental health because that was a big part of the story I was writing. Um, That's really cool. Tell everybody the uh, title. So it's called Something Changed, and the subtitle is Stumbling Through Divorce, Dating, and Depression. And that so it was my blog, which I originally called, what was it, A Decent Guy Does Divorce and Dating. <laughs> and I changed it to Love, Laughter, and Truth, which is a, I don't know if you, you've heard of Bill Hicks. He was a comedian from Texas. He died in 1994, and he was just brilliant. And it was a, a quote that come in love, laughter, and truth, and wherever love, laughter, and truth are, I'm there in spirit. It was something like that. And I always loved that phrase, love, laughter, and truth. So I called, I, I then renamed it that. But then the, the posts, and it's now called A Familiar Stranger, but I'll come on to that. But anyway, the, the posts... Yeah, it just—it's like I said—it poured out of me, and it—and then it, I realised I could pull it together into a book. And as far as the title of of the book, something changed. Is uh, it was a song that was the first dance at my wedding, one of my favourite songs by a, a, a British band called Pulp, and it's about how you meet somebody. And then your life changes forever. And you didn't know you were going to meet. You were going about your business. And then suddenly you meet this person. Your life's never the same again. And so it was the first dance at my wedding. And then after my divorce, it struck me. And, and this is the thing where, where all of the, everything I wrote, it just a thought would pop into my head or a word or a phrase. And then the rest would just kind of follow. And I had this thought in my head that that there's a parallel between the, that, that the day we got married, or the, sorry, the day we met and the day our marriage ended, you know, the same thing. Your whole life has changed, right. but for a different reason. Yeah. And it just seemed to encapsulate everything about what the book was about. There was a fact that it was a first dance at the wedding. There's a fact that, you know, obviously that's about meeting, but then the other side of it and everything changed because it ended. And it just seemed to sum up exactly what it was about so yeah so something changed stumbling through divorce dating and depression is what it became that is really cool how long would you say it took you to write 
Um, uh, I started my blog at the beginning of December 2015, and I published the ebook version in August 2017. So, nigh on a year and a half, the writing, and then I. I, I edit it to be to 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 flow as a book as a as a because obviously as a blog you're writing chronologically right. whereas the journey I wanted to take people on as a as a book was more themed it's a themed way of looking at it and so it looks at my divorce and then you know well in the background was mental health and I tell that story and then you know that. <laughs> then it's getting back out there and dating, which was a whole, yeah, eye opener. <laughs> and then I had a, it kind of ground me down after a bit because you go through all kinds of roller coaster of dating. And so I got some counseling and then I, um, around relationship related things. And then I kind of came to a, a, a resolution really of having adapted to my new circumstances as being a single single guy with you know shared custody of his children and um and actually being all right on my own and accepting this is my life now and, and a lot of good has come out of it right that book sounds incredibly compelling i'm wondering too you have a second one i think it's like a compilation of poetry yes yeah i um again never intended to write poetry it's funny uh how I, when my kids, about 10 months after I started writing, it was my birthday and my kids got me a, a really nice notebook and pen because obviously they were aware of my writing. And on the day I got it on my birthday, I thought I need to write something in this on the day I got it. And whereas with everything, my blog, it was all taped. And then when I had a pen in my hand, a poem came out, and I say it came out because I didn't consciously write the poem. I had no intention to do that. I just got a phrase in my head, and I wrote a poem. And the way I write, and and again, poetry, it just kind of flowed out really. And it, it's just a word comes into my head or a, an expression, and I write it down. And then the next line comes, and then the next line comes, and then you get oh, that's finished. And then you might knock it into shape a little bit. And then before I knew it, I'd written well over a hundred poems. And I thought, oh, I can publish that as a book. And I called it um so yeah, my poetry book was was published in, in December, and that's called A Familiar Stranger. And it's themed around four areas, living, which is kind of about modern life and social media and the you know how we live now and capitalism and the rat race and this kind of thing. And so living, loving, uh, falling, which is the depression stuff, and then rising, which is kind of overcoming that. And it's called A Familiar Stranger. It was a conversation with a friend, and and, and she'd said about – she was divorced as well, and, and she said, strange, you know, he's just like a – he's just like a once familiar stranger now. And I thought, oh, I said, I like that expression. And she said, oh, you should write a poem about that. I said, right, I will. So I wrote this poem, A Familiar Stranger. And then when I pulled it to pulled my poems together into a book, I just, I liked that as a title because with writing, I don't know if you find this with what you do with your pod, with the podcast, being open about things 
you build connections with people. People relate to your story and, and they want to talk to you about it. And they'll open up to you as people that haven't opened up to other people about particular struggles and challenge, sorry, challenges. They'll open up to you because they're not going to be judged. They know that you understand. Right. And so it, it, it was weird that people had read all this really personal stuff about me and they'd read my book and they'd contact me. And I thought, I felt a bit of a familiar stranger, you know, that people don't know me, but they feel they do and can talk to me. So I liked, I felt that I'd become a bit of a familiar stranger. I just thought it fit really well and I liked that title. So, yeah. So, and then I've changed my uh, website to be called a familiar stranger as well. Yeah. Awesome. I was just going to ask you that the website, can you give the uh, web address? Yes, it's uh www.afamiliarstranger.co.uk and there they can find your blog they can be people can buy your book and then they could also book you for public speaking yes that's right yeah and um and currently in the uh this period of of of, of lockdown and i'm taking it as an opportunity to develop something i've had in my mind to do for for a while now and not had chance to do which is a personal development course built around things that I've learned and uh, yeah and because once I say I do a lot of speaking but I wanted to be able to do something where as a follow-up with people to help to help them because you get a lot of people coming up you afterwards and telling you things and so I wanted to do something where I could offer a session to, or something to kind of help them That's uh, and and yeah so I've so now I'm developing that as an online course now that will be launched soon. And then once lockdown's over, I'm going to be rolling this course out. So that's my next uh, my next venture that I'm keen to pursue. That's awesome. It sounds right along the lines of what you've been doing with your development of boxing coaches yeah. and so forth. So it doesn't seem like a stretch at all. No, that's it. And it, it, it's, it's great how over the years as this goes... Uh, and I said about, you know, in my job with boxing and doing the work around mental health in boxing, it was like my two passions have combined. And now I work for Mind. I, I volunteer at a local boxing club. I do my writing. I, yeah, I'm a tutor. Uh, you know, I've, I've delivered workshops and various things for many years now. I love tutoring. And it it is like all my interests and passions are kind of combined coming together really and you know ultimately my big passion is and I think I said it earlier is helping other people to you know I feel very fortunate to like I said have been involved in things I'm passionate about to feel I've discovered a real sense of purpose when I'm writing when I'm speaking when I'm helping around mental health I feel I'm I feel I'm just that's my element and when I'm doing that I think this is me this is who I'm meant to be. And, yeah. and, and I want to help other people find that because, you know, if I can, anyone can, and, you know, I'm not any, I'm not special or different. I, anyone feeds can. You. And, it feeds you. You've, you're living yeah. your life through your values. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, that was www.afamiliarstranger.co.uk, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Listeners, please check out Matthew Williams' site and check out his books. Matthew, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, if somebody is out there right now listening to this show, what's one piece of advice that you would give them if they're in a really low, depressed state right now themselves? 
talk to someone is I mean if if you haven't then then talk to someone and don't feel don't feel that you should or that you have to get through it on your own because actually it, you need help you're not well you're ill it's an illness you need help get get help get help and then to know that the the message I want everyone to take away from my talks and thing I say is that the worst it's the worst thing I could ever imagine going through and it led directly to the best. I never in a million years would have thought I could write a book that I I could inspire other people through through you know, through having gone through what was a terrible thing and you know, there's many other opportunities that have come up for me. I've been in a video with Glenn Close, the the, the actress. Just amazing random opportunities that I would never in a million years have imagined all happened because of a most terrible experience and I think depression in particular robs you of, of hope and just give if I can give a slight glimmer and helping people to see to cling on to some element of hope just find even if it's something that gets you through the next minute the next hour some element of hope somewhere it, it does get better and life can be even better than you imagined because of it Nice. Awesome piece of suggestion and advice. So Matthew, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for all of the work you're doing and the advocacy you're doing, the books you've written, your public speaking. And I also want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Depression Files. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And, and I hope, I hope it, I also hope it can help someone somewhere along the way and yeah continue doing what you're doing it's fantastic absolutely well thank you very much make sure you stay healthy yes i'll do my very best you too thank you for listening to the depression files if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide please reach out for help in the united states you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>